taking a different approach to Peter, whose paper I found very interesting. I was desperately trying to get hold of his book <laughs> beforehand to find out what he was going to say. Um, but he has concentrated, as he says, on the politics particularly. I'm going to talk much more about uh, some of the industrial relations issues. And one of the things about writing this paper, which I did a year ago, was it actually forced me to get out my dusty copy of In Place of Strife and actually read it very, 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 very closely. Um, and I learned quite a lot in the process. Right, okay. Um, right, so the ov overview is really, very quickly, that the Labour Party, one of its found founding purposes was to secure the freedom of trade unions to strike. Um, and this runs through uh, most of its history. And until the late 80s, I would say roughly three quarters of its history to date, uh, Labour has been prepared to legislate to reverse adverse court judgments or to repeal adverse legislation to allow a wide freedom to strike. When it's been in government, obviously before the war it, it formed two minority governments, um, but when it's been in government, it's tended to face both ways. So it's actually had to do things about strikes that trade unions often don't like, but on the other hand, it's the political <coughs> wing of the labour movement. In what I would call the perhaps non-intervention, uh, I perhaps stand corrected in terms of the discussions on what is intervention and what isn't, but what I roughly called non-intervention the last 30 years... Um, We've seen Labour accept the Tory settlement, uh, and now we're seeing perhaps uh, a return to a slight, the older, the longer-standing tradition. Okay. Right. Lewis Minkin, who's the kind of the chronicler of, of the trade union and Labour Party relationship, argued that protection an advancement of Labour's industrial interests was the most basic and unifying purpose of the Labour Party. Um, the Taft Vale judgment in 1901 uh, let loose a whole set of adverse judgments, some of which had actually occurred before, and the Webbs reckoned that at least £200,000 in the money of the day was spent in damages and legal expenses in a whole series of cases, uh, which are eventually ended with the passing of the 1906 Trade Disputes Act, where the TUC and the Infant Labour Party are absolutely critical to passing that piece of legislation. It gave unions immunity against liability for torts committed in contemplation or furtherance of a trade dispute. For those who are less familiar with legal technology, which legal terminology, I should say, sorry, includes me, a tort is a civil wrong other than breach of contract and the two remedies for, for torts are uh, injunctions and damages. Correct? Not made any mistakes at all. I'm looking at a lawyer at the back. <laughs> okay. Um, the, ex the term in contemplation or firmness of a trade dispute, ICFTD, what, which Wedderburn called the golden formula, is absolutely critical. Trade disputes encompass secondary action 
and picking up uh, Peter's point into union action, into union disputes. Okay. This is, uh, I think, the longest quote. No, not quite. Uh, a lot, another long quote from Minkin. Industrial freedom was of primary importance to unions, having been secured in the face of hostility from employers, the judiciary, and on occasion the government and legislature, it was guarded against threats or incursions from any source. Thus, in a party, that's the Labour Party, committed to defending the union capacity to organise, bargain, regulate and activate industrial sanctions against employers, it was outside permissible bounds that the party should restrict what it had been created to protect. This is a kind of motif for the first 90 years of the Labour Party. So very early on, the first minority Labour government in 1924, faced with the problem of certain high-profile transport strikes and the possible use of the 1920 Emergency Powers Act, there's a lot of which wasn't used in the end, but, but there's a kind of growing apart, and as a result of that, the TUC and the Labour Party, which at that point had joint departments, uh, as, as well as being in the same building, obviously, but they actually had joint departments, start to move apart, separate. There is actually a difference between Labour, which, of course, when it becomes a governing party, is a quite a different beast to when it's in opposition. Um, after the 26th general strike, the Tories... 1927 Trade Disputes and Trade Unions Act, which Adrian Williamson at the back has published in our Historical Studies Journal, which there are copies that Paul's got. Yeah, yeah we have it here. Um, okay. Anyway, that, that's the most uh, a very very thorough account of that act, which which has, which has been sort of basically forgotten about. Uh, that act produced, uh, meant that strikes against the government and most secondary strikes became illegal. There were new picketing offences, a whole ra range of other things. The key point is that Labour was committed to repeal it. It failed to do so in the 29 government uh, because of the actions of the Liberal Party. Um, it succeeded in 1946. And I'll quote Ernie Bevin here. Ernest Bevin, who um, was... Um, Minister of Labour in the um, uh, wartime cabinet, uh, was by 1946 a foreign secretary, wouldn't generally be expected to, to take part in such a debate, uh, but couldn't resist the opportunity. And what he says here is a kind of, has we f hear echoes when we get to in place of strife. If ever there was a class act, this was one. The Tories had cast the trade unions as enemies of the state. This is on page 86, if anybody wants to follow it. Um, and while as an individual I have been a trade union leader for 20 years, I have never been an enemy of the state. I have been as big a constitutionalist as any member on the other side of the House. And I'm fighting to remove the stigma which the Tory party in 1927 put upon me as leader of a trade union. Very heartfelt. Uh, interesting, uh, a, one of the new Labour MPs uh, of the 45 intake had his maiden speech at the same, uh, in the same debate, one Terence Donovan. 
uh, and it's worth re reading what he says actually in terms of the role of the law in industrial relations. But of course, uh, by the same token, Labour kept the wartime order 1305, which, which uh, severely restricted strikes. It didn't actually stop most of them, but potentially led to prosecutions, certainly with a lot of prosecutions in the wartime and imprisonment in, in certain cases. Uh, this was kept on the statute book to 1951. So Labour are repealing one Tory measure but then keeping something, an emergency wartime measure. Uh, so they're kind of facing both ways. <coughs> when Labour forms its next majority government in 64, uh, obviously a 64 government in the 66, uh, we see um, this similar attitude. So first of all, Labour repeals the section of the 1963 Contracts of Employment Act, which is the one that gives you uh, statutory rights to notice, very minimal at the time, but they were there, which had, and again, I have to say, until I did this, I hadn't realised, this particular act in 1963 broke continuity of service for strikers. So you went on strike, you broke your continuity of service. So your rights to statutory notice were affected. Uh, and that was reversed in the Redundancy Payments Act. Similarly, Labour reverse the Rooks versus Barnard ruling, which had resulted in union officials paying damages for a new tort of civil intimidation uh, by the 1965 Trade Disputes Act, which was something like two or three sections, tiny. Uh, but at the same time, uh, and again, this, is, this often gets submerged under in place of strife, the 1966 Prices and Incomes Act contained reserved criminal sanctions if strikes forced wage rises banned by statutory incomes policy. Barbara Carter, who hadn't introduced this because I think it was under Ray Gunter, uh, said in Parliament, this was not penal legislation to undermine and weaken the unions, but reserve powers where there was deliberate intent to pressurise an employer into committing an offence. So again, we have this... Uh, we support a wide freedom to strike, but on the other hand, with the government, we recognise there are circumstances where we have to con control them in some way. When we come to in place of strife, uh, I'm only going to talk about the measures affecting strikes, but um, uh, it's surprisingly... Uh, we'll get on to the penal clauses in a moment, but it's surprisingly uh, progressive. So, first of all, in place of strife, rejected the 1968 Donovan majority view. It wasn't a unanimous view, and that's one of the reasons it tended to be, got, be forgotten about. And this included <coughs> Lord Donovan himself to remove, Im remove immunity from unofficial strike leaders inducing breach of contract. Uh, in, in, in a brilliant um, civil service language, the government does not believe that this would improve matters. Okay, so it rejects the one one of the bits of Donovan which was really uh, against strikes, uh, but it did agree to reverse the Stratford versus Lindley judgment of 1964, which 
the TUC was much more concerned about than it was about Rooks versus Barnes. Rooks versus Barnes was important, but the Stratford versus Lindley was actually had much greater implications. And to quote uh, uh, in place of Stry, inducement of breach of a commercial contract in the circumstances of a trade dispute should be protected in the same way as the inducement of a breach of a contract of employment. The alternative is to outlaw sympathetic action, but trade unions have a long tradition we must remember this, but trade unions have a long tradition, this is a government white paper, okay, of relying on the solidarity of union members working in different places, and it would be wrong to attach legal penalties. Donovan himself, speaking in the House of Laws, and again he admitted this is unusual for a chair of the Royal Commission to actually then participate in a subsequent <coughs> debate, Donovan said, this measure would worth more than all of the proposals on unofficial strikes. Um, of course, this is Donovan who believed in a different proposal on unofficial strikes. Okay. And it wasn't in, and I, and I should have added this, it wasn't in Labour's 1970 bill, because of course there were two industrial relations bills in 1970. There was the Labour bill, and then obviously the Conservative bill, when they got elected uh, later in the year. And finally, there was no change in picketing law because at that point picketing was not considered to be an issue. It became such in the early 70s. Right. So we have what appears to be fairly progressive. In terms of the penal clauses, and this is again, this is where a close reading, which of course, how would I put it, in the kind of noise created. Uh, at the time, this reading disappears, okay, but a close reading of what the penal clause is actually said. So the conciliation pause on unconstitutional strikes, <coughs> when effects were likely to be serious, <coughs> that's difficult, and only after conciliation had been tried, And the white paper points out, in many cases, the employer is at fault and should withdraw the offending action till adequate discussion had taken place. In other words, they were promoting a status quo clause. And those of you who were around in the 70s, it was not until 1976 that we got a status quo clause in the National Engineering Procedure Agreement. And a lot of the disputes were in the engineering and related industries. So that's not quite as draconian as it suggests. When it comes to the, the uh, ballots, where a major official strike was called a discretionary power to require a union to ballot according to its own rules, not by some prescribed mechanism, uh, where, as, again, this is the, it reminds me of, I think, what the Tories were trying to do in 1996, where who the hell decides if this is a serious threat or not? Okay, we're a serious threat to the economy and public interest and doubt that the strike commanded members' support. So it's not an automatic. Both of these had been... Uh, the Donovan report had said that both, both such measures would be ineffective and quite likely counterproductive. And the proposed Commission on Industrial Relations could make recommendations on unresolved inter-union disputes. 
If these were defined on the industrial board could impose financial penalties on employers refusing to recognise a recommended union, unions or individual strikers. In the last, this is where I disagree with peace, <laughs> through attachment of earnings orders, avoiding imprisonment for non-payment. Okay. Right. Now, obviously the issue of fines became the... Uh, that was the issue that, that unified trade union opposition. Vic Feather argued that they brought the taint of criminality even if this was to be seen as a civil fine, uh, into industrial relations. The TUC position in general, um, the imposition of fines in industrial relations would make it possible to widen their use in future. That, that was a really important issue because we see a parallel in terms of the registration debate in the Industrial Relations Act of 71, where a lot of the arguments was the fact that if we register and if we get entangled in the workings of the Act, it's going to be very, very difficult to repeal some of this. Yeah. So the thing is, we don't want it in the first place. And finally, Scanlon, uh, who's reputed to have said the trade union movement was see to it that the fines were paid by sympathisers. Donovan himself, in his um, intervention in the House of Lords, made a series of points, would strikers be allowed a defence? Someone might say, I was ill on the day of the strike, and yet you're fining me. Okay, that never stopped Rupert Murdoch sacking the whole of his workforce. Anyway, would an employer be compelled to deduct through attachment of earnings? And perhaps the employers might even pay the fines themselves in small strikes. Um, and interestingly, and this is something I only discovered, um, I can't, I've got a piece of paper somewhere, famous expression, I have in my hand a piece of paper, yeah. I only discovered yesterday morning, and I thought, just in case I've forgotten what on earth I'm meant to be talking about, so I dug out the second edition of Wedderburn's Worker in the Law, that's a 1971 edition, and found the following, but actually, the TUC position on attachment of earnings orders had just been relaxed from its previous position of 1934 uh, in a paper which was published in February 1969, a command paper. Report of the committee, it's a massive, hundreds of pages long. Report of the committee on the enforcement of judgment debts. <coughs> so the TUC had actually, without realising when it submitted evidence in 65 or 66, said, well, we, we can see circumstances where this might be a legitimate way forward. <laughs> Obviously, this is not something that got publicised at the time, but Wedderburn's eagle eye picked it up. Um, okay. Right, so that's enough of in place for strife, or nearly enough. Now, of course, one of the consequences of in place of strife was that Labour, having been at loggerheads with, with the unions, particularly the TUC, then some people would say fell into bed with them, uh, whether for good or for ill. Maybe that's, that's too strong an expression, John. But anyway, uh, there was a sort of what we might see retrospectively as a bit of a love-in. And so basically, uh, there's no question we will repeal 
the Industrial Relations Act uh, that the Tories have brought in. And just picking up one point, which uh, Peter did make, uh, say something about some of the issues to do with castle hostility may have been because she was a woman. Uh, I found in going through uh, the debates on the Industrial Relations Bill um, that Castle made the following intervention because she led on behalf, because she's Shadow Secretary of State, she led on behalf of the Labour opposition. Uh, and this is on the 14th of December, it's on page 91 of this. And I'm not sure whether this, I thought this might be an unscripted comment because she'd just been interrupted by a, a Tory woman, MP. And she said, speaking as a woman, I think that the strike weapon is essentially a masculine device. It is crude, it is clumsy, and it is often inefficient. But then she added, let me also add, speaking as a product of this day and age, that is, is an instrument which men and women of all sections of society have been driven to use. So, uh, thought that was interesting. I don't know whether people talked about things like strikes being masculine in 1970. Good heavens. Anyway. Um, sorry? What about the equal pay strike at women's workers? Yes, no, no, she was not against, but she'd make a general point. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> anyway, Labour repealed the Industrial Relations Act with Tolra. They were unable to uh, widen remit of secondary action to reverse Stratford versus Lindley, but they managed to do that in the 1976 Amendment Act. Now, the next thing which often, again, tends to disappear. Uh, and again, this is why it's worth going back and rereading the documents. They reenacted the whole of Industrial Relations Act's unfair dismissal provisions because, of course, uh, uh, Labour was in favour of legislation uh, on unfair dismissal. Um, Donovan report could consider whether strikes should merely suspend the contract of employment without breaking it or terminating it and suggested an expert committee, this is a crucial point, should consider it, but Labour did not pursue this, didn't pick it up in place of strife or any later point. Whereas, of course, the sacking of strikers becomes a very, very big issue, particularly in the late 80s and, and the 90s. Uh, and one could say, if there, were, if there was a lost opportunity, if that was the one that perhaps most springs to mind. Now, uh, TUC in 1975, uh, as I've said, uh, in place of strife, did not uh, suggest there should be any changes on picketing laws, meaning in terms of tightening them up, probably. But by 1975, TUC was proposing rights for pickets to stop vehicles. Pickets should have the right to obstruct the highway for a reasonable period to effect the purpose of communicating or obtaining information or peacefully persuading not to work. Um, again, this is, has been a big issue, or certainly was a big issue when there were a lot more strikes. Uh, not much of an issue these days at the moment. Again, this was not pursued. Labour, in uh, looking for a rerun, in a sense, of the campaign against the 71 Act, 
promise, well, unions were looking for a rerun. Labour promised repeal of the 80 and the 82 Tory Acts. Uh, and it's not until 1986 TUC Labour Party Liaison Committee accepted the 1984 Acts principle of secret ballots for strikes but at the same time proposed widening rights to picket, which had obviously been narrowed by the 1980 Act, and prohibiting ex parte injunctions. Um, so, <coughs> again, we're kind of there's a kind of balancing act. This, of course, uh, disappears with the third uh, election defeat. And, and just to remind people, the reason that Labour lost the 83 election was because uh, a group of MPs uh, split away to form a Social Democratic Party and split the Tory, split the anti-Tory vote. Basically, I'm not saying that Labour would have won, but Thatcher wouldn't have got a landslide victory in '83. Uh, and the consequence of three successive election defeats, uh, there was a lot of pressure, and eventually. Uh, we get a situation where uh, Labour changes its policy. The TUC does after a fashion, but not quite. Uh, in, in the, the TUC is more able to fudge these things than Labour is because it's not quite so in the public glare. Um, and back to Minkin. Uh, by 1990, a profound break and historic shift had occurred. It transcended 90 years of history and overcame what seemed an impossible barrier in the form of 90% of party conference votes. That, again, has obviously changed because of the balance of, of the unions within the Labour Party and, and this conference. So by 1992, we get no return to the trade union legislation of the 70s, uh, prefiguring uh, Tony Blair's words and the New Labour Manifesto of 97 which went further and also rejected secondary action. Um, Labour did make some relatively minor, well, important changes. Uh, so they amended the 93 Act's requirement to name the workers they intended, uh, who should be balloted. Uh, they introduced a period of protected industrial action for official strikers uh, but unofficial strikers, uh, because of breach of contract, were still unprotected, uh, as at Gate Gourmet, which was probably uh, the last last sort of uh, cause celebrate on that particular issue. Right, so... Um, <coughs> coming to conclusion, Labour plumbing the depths. Uh, New Labour did not see any need, and it's quite interesting reading the manifestos, which of course become, dare I say it, more and more vacuous, dare I say it? Hmm? Um, anyway, one of the things that, uh, that they didn't comment on was strike law. Uh, so this whole, I, I, I just had a moment of doubt. I had a Spiro Agnew moment. Um, do you put an E? <laughs> do you put an E between the O and the S in manifestos? <laughs> uh, the Oxford English Dictionary tells me I can use either. Uh, anyway, uh, Ed Miliband, 
who went, who is now a reformed character since he stopped being leader of the opposition, uh, but went through a period of being very robotic. He was the Edbot, I suppose, as opposed to the Maybot, um, and um, did actually say that strikes are always a sign of failure. He said this. Um, in relation to just before the November the 30th, 2011 public sector pension strikes. The biggest public sector, sector strike in Britain ever, uh, and a very, very significant one. Um, but there was always, although um, Peter talked about the Labour left, which obviously in the 60s was a very, very significant grouping with a lot of heavyweights, uh, by the 2000s, it had shrunk in, within the Parliamentary Labour Party quite dramatically, and John MacDonald was, was seen to be the standard bearer and presented a couple of bills to try and reverse, first of all, a lot of trade union legislation, and then secondly, a very small amount. Um, and we did get the 2017 election manifesto where we get a uh, call for the repeal of the 2016 Act. Okay, so. I asked the question, coming back to my original point, that Labour was founded to provide a freedom, not total freedom, but a general freedom of unions to be able to strike and workers not to be uh, <coughs> prosecuted, etc., etc. Um, will Labour start to reduce the intervention of the courts? Will it start to restore the freedoms to strike and will it return to one of its founding purposes? So Labour is, is at, at that kind of moment. Now, if we go back 50 years from in place of strife, in place of strife, uh, I'm not, although I was against in place of strife at the time, I was just beginning to be politically active. And it was just coming on my radar. I knew people who'd turned up to the demonstrations against it. Um, uh, it when you have a close reading of it, it's, uh, I don't see it as a lost opportunity, as some people do. I think they could have pursued some of the themes of Donovan, like uh, suspension of contract in the event of, of industrial action. I think that would have been really very, very, very useful. Um, I don't see it as a lost opportunity, as some people say, that if Labour had got it through, the uh, trajectory of industrial relations law would have been quite different. I just I don't buy that. I'm not into counterfactual history. It, clearly, they weren't going to get it through. Uh, and the more it sounds very similar to some of the things that are happening, the more they bang on about it, the less chance they have of getting it through. Um, but it's a useful device because it reminds us there was a time when Labour Party spokespeople leading government ministers and so on, could actually, obviously being careful how they chose their words, actually be not unsympathetic to the reasons why people go on strike. And that tends to be lost in a lot of the noise about the penal clauses, which of course are very, very important, and was really uh, one of these things where in a hole stop digging. Uh, but as you say, there were a lot of personalities involved, and that's, it just went on and on until they got out. And, and, and I don't think many people were covered in glory as a result of it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much.